Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here with global markets and economics correspondent David Scott. David, welcome back. Paul, great to be here as usual. Been a busy week, and joining us on the show to talk about everything that's happened, uh, senior economist at Westpac, Matthew Hassan. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, look, uh, a bit happening this week, uh, uh, Matthew. Um, we had the Q1 GDP. Um, and while it came in line with broadly what the market was expecting, um, there are a few concerns in there, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation ahead of the number as to whether we might actually see a negative. Uh, for the first quarter, uh, we had a few extenuating circumstances, the pretty wet weather, um, Cyclone Debbie up in Queensland, and uh, we already had a pretty clear hit to our exports um, for the quarter, uh, which was set to contract, um, would take 0.7% off GDP growth. So uh, it was it was in the end a point three uh, in line with expectations, but that's a pretty uh, soft pace uh, for GDP growth. Um, essentially, all of it uh, accounted for by a rise in inventories. Um, and whenever that happens, you always have this debate uh, across analysts as to whether that's uh, a temporary phenomenon that reverses next quarter, or whether it's indeed an unanticipated rise, the dreaded unanticipated rise in inventories that. Uh, means everyone's overshot and uh, demand is actually very weak. The most concerning aspects were really around incomes, uh, household incomes. Uh, the last six months, um, we have seen uh, a pretty good outcome for uh, commodity prices, terms of trade and income nationally. For the quarter, it was a pretty good uh, quarter for national income. I think it was up over, or nominal GDP was up over 2%. Um, but uh, the detail around the household sector shows that's uh, completely bypassed households so far. Uh, and although jobs growth has been ticking over, you know, the weak backdrop for wage inflation uh, led to another uh, pretty poor income uh, result for the quarter, a little bit better than the fourth quarter last year. Uh, but uh, again, households were drawing down on their savings or, or reducing new savings to fund the consumption that went ahead. And consumption wasn't particularly strong itself, up, up 0.5. And a lot of the uncertainty was around whether, whether consumption had grown at all. Uh, we had retail sales stalling flat. So the, the overall picture for the income side for households is still pretty dismal. Um, around the consumption numbers, uh, I think at least there, uh, the, you know, the 0.5 is ticking over, and we know there was a drag. So from the, the cyclone alone, uh, you know, retail sales up in Queensland were, went backwards 1.3% 1, 1. in the quarter. Yeah, um, right. So there was a clear disruption there that will we'll roll out. But um, it's, you know, it just uh, looks to be pretty uh, sluggish growth by any, any measure. And that, that um, I suppose, positive terms of trade shock that we had in terms of you know, the rise in, in nominal uh, uh, income that we – nominal growth that we saw uh, towards the back half of last year, uh, I think we discussed it on the show actually that you know, if you see something like this uh, as a business – You'd be crazy to to um, to factor that into your ongoing uh, overall costs, right? Um, you know, and yeah. lo and behold, I mean, you need to see, particularly in the commodity sector, those mining companies where you know we saw uh, equities nice rally in the in the um, in the mining sector uh, on the ASX towards the back half of last year. 
Um, I saw one of the global investment banks uh, upgraded BHP today, actually. Mm. Um, so they might have been a little bit late to the party on that. But uh, anyway, <laughs> um, but uh, they, um, they, uh, the, the thing is that when you see those better prices that you can yeah. get on the market um, and they look too good to be true, they probably are. And you've got to be a little bit careful in terms of how you pass that on down into wages. And Absolutely. Yeah. And so when it comes to sort of thinking about what's been happening in the commodity space over the last six months, it's been pretty clear from anyone who's who's in, in the sector um, that you know this was not going to last. Um, you know, there were very clear temporary uh, contributors. So we had uh, you know, the restrictions on Chinese coal production were a big factor. Um, you know, we're in the middle of a bit of a pump priming for fiscal policy in, in China, um, and that's sort of supporting the demand side. Uh, and anyone in the industry was taking that approach, you know, saying this, you know, three hundred dollars a ton for coke and coal, um, you know, that's back to the good old days. But no one was at all saying this is going to flow through to, to you know, expansion. Um, I think what it's done at the margin is um, relieve some of the pressure in the sector. So that that really aggressive move for continuous cost cutting and cost reduction over the last three or four years has gone a little bit on the back burner. Uh, so it's probably most best to think of it as as a you know some easing in that that downside pressure. But no one was really thinking counting on this this windfall to to be sustained, um, especially you know up to three hundred down to one hundred and fifty and then back up to three hundred again. Um, this time with the the cyclone disruptions the main factor. I don't think the sector at any stage was was really looking at this as a, as something to plan on. Mm. Um, that said, I think if you sort of step back, it's probably a bit more mixed. You know, the, the iron ore price story has, you know, that that's more around this, this sort of fiscal, Chinese fiscal demand story and maybe a bit better global demand as well. Um, and, and that's sort of come back as well. So I think you've sort of got um, a lot of different shocks and cycle, you know, mini cycles happening in, in the price um, if you step right back, at, at the very least, that 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 slide, that multi-year, mm. uh, four or five-year slide in, in prices, at some level, that seems to have arrested. Um, yeah. and, and so it's you know it's a it's a really complicated mix of the uh, And I think it's one one thing I think Scott Morrison started uh, talking about. Uh, I mean, this is just looking over on on the fiscal side, where the, the government is trying to make sure that they keep a lid on spending, but what they've done in the last budget. Uh, is to try and reframe um, for the public how they talk about spending so that, we, that, that, that you can avoid having to contract as quickly gover- the government's uh, spending as a proportion of the whole economy um, while still saying that you're mm. trying to eliminate waste in the public sector but make sure that the, the dollars that are rolled out mm. and from the public sector are, are being used for productive investment essentially in infrastructure roads. Mm-hmm. The Sydney Airport, Second Sydney Airport, etc. Um, but as part of that as well, he was talking about we're in a more volatile world now, and mm-hmm. Australia's a little bit more uh, going to be a little bit more exposed to some of these uh, shocks, and uh, that's probably well, a bit well, of I what think, we're seeing. I think what's interesting though is, is um, you know what we've seen over the last three quarters with with economic activity. You know the contraction in the third quarter last year, rebound in the fourth quarter. You know, maybe sailing close to contraction again in the first quarter of this year is, um, you know, th- that volatility notwithstanding, you know, the, the underlying pace of growth is more sluggish. And so while you while you've got a more sluggish, you know, core, um, you're more susceptible to these, you know, to these, 
you know, minor shocks. I and mean, really, Cyclone Debbie was a significant event, but nothing like um, you know the Queensland floods in, in 2011 or, or some of the other shocks that we've encountered along the way. So, yeah. um, you know, while this volatility is in the, is in the mix, I think clearly we're we're not we're not punching out strong enough trend growth to to keep that buffer that we used to have. And so what would ordinarily have been a minor thing is now sort of coming close to tipping us over. Dave, uh, what was your read on it? Weak was my read. In one word, um, obviously, uh, you guys have covered it uh, very nicely there, but uh, the core theme is that uh, household consumption, which is just shy of about 60% of the Australian economy, is far weaker than what it was in the past. Uh, and that's courtesy of, uh, obviously, very weak incomes growth and also an elevated level of uh, household indebtedness. Um, and people are struggling to uh, to go and keep up their spending. So in order to go and do that, there are there's diverting less uh, money to savings and more money to consumption. But the key factor is how long that can persist uh, without a pickup in incomes growth. So and this is the, the the big question. So the changes in the workforce, the changes in the jobs, the types of jobs that we're doing um, in an environment where household balance sheets are kind of stretched, um, just because. Um, you know, credit has been cheap for a long time, um, and people have, uh, and that's been part of what the, the Reserve Bank has been trying to encourage people to do: borrow up to try and make sure that they can gear up so that they can keep money moving around the economy. Um, but now we're at a point where households, um, uh, with wages growth the way it has been, and kept continuously disappointing, just slightly mm. to the downside, but yeah. but repeatedly each quarter. Um, that we're getting to this point now where um, households are a little bit more um, uh, or probably much more sensitive to the prospect of any uh, small Mm -hmm. negative shocks. Yeah, look, I think the household story um, gets really interesting once you start to look at the state level. Uh, so we, we get sort of state breakdowns around demand and, and labour income um, and, and uh, on an annual basis we get a, a com- more complete picture around savings behaviour um, and some information around balance sheets. Um, and what, what, and this, this sort of theme we see a lot in our own consumer sentiment survey which you know, we've run every month since the mid-70s and has, uh, has state and subgroup breakdowns. But what, what's showing through uh, in a very interesting way as a very divergent um, state performance, but also divergences in behaviour. So if we look at at, uh, the reduction in savings rates, for example, um, over the last year, and and one of the key questions when we see something like that is um, how much of this is relating to uh, income pressure, so people don't have the same cash flow to save from, and how much of it is kind of a risk aversion, GFC-style story where people are, are, are taking fright. Um, and, and what we've seen over the last year in particular is uh, the reduction in savings is um, is really heavily centred on, on – w- in fact, WA accounts for almost all of the reduction in savings nationally. Yeah. So households in WA, they're reducing their savings rates at you know, about 3%. That's where the wage story is uh, in, in quite dangerous sort of – perilous contraction, if you like. There's a higher starting point for savings. Mm. Um, you know, they're used to these cycles and, uh, and they were saving you know, 20, 25% of their income at, through the peak. Uh, but that, that buffer has is, is rapidly been run down. Um, and what's interesting is when you, when you look at uh, you know, the, the, the big eastern states, New South Wales and, and Victoria, where the income picture, yes, there's, there's these um, unsettling sort of uh, industry ch- upheavals that are happening and changes in, in, um, in wage arrangements and, and all sorts of things. And this, this 
you know, more pervasive sense of insecurity around around labour markets. But where the economies are not facing the same, uh, you know, heavy contraction in mining incomes, um, what we're seeing in those states is, um, despite balance sheets being in much better condition, uh, especially on the asset side, savings rates are being maintained at, at at high levels, I mean, right. you know, we're still seeing uh, you know, no no reduction in savings. So, mm. do you put that down to a bit of risk aversion, and people are still very cautious about uh, that look for labour market? A- a- absolutely, I-, I think it's telling us that, um, notwithstanding the strength of the housing market, the 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 average consumer in these states is not leaning into it or leveraging into this cycle. They're, they're being very restrained in many ways. And I know that, that cu- that's counterintuitive given what we're seeing around debt levels, but I think, again, once you tease out the, de- the state detail and, and, and the balance sheet side of things, you see uh, a large portion of the rise in leverage, so household debt-to-income ratios, is coming out of states like WA where they're seeing outright declines in income. So it's not necessarily that the debt side is, is rising particularly, it's that there, there's this compression happening around incomes. So I think there's a lot to be uh, gained by sort of taking a moment to look at that those dynamics. And what we see is a you know an economy that's um, that's got widely divergent household performances across states. Yes, it's, it's true that you know there's this restraint and there's this um, whatever it is that you know the saturated household debt story across the eastern states is is a restraining factor. Uh, but it's playing out in, in different ways according to those income and, and balance sheet dynamics. And of course, if you want any place in the country to be households in, in any part of the country to be building some kind of buffer into their into yep. into the household budget you want it to be in the big cities uh, where there's the most debt that that's wrong yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah it's, in, it's it's very interesting um dave just on the consumer as well um how do you see the outlook there you know um obviously as um matthew was referring to earlier um if you don't have growth it in that sector, it it starts to um, just chip away at that buffer that's been there uh, in the economy. The consumer sector, what is it now, 60% out of um, economic activity. How do you see that sector, um, the outlook for that sector at the moment? Well, it's hard to see there's going to be a substantial lift in consumption levels. Uh, a lot will come down to what happens in the labour market. Now, there's been a lot of discussion around uh, underemployment in particular, uh, degrees of labour market slack, uh, hours worked uh, is very weak, even with the recent pickup we've seen in employment growth. Um, you'd need to see the confidence that businesses are expressing in, in surveys such as the NAB Business Survey uh, start being transferred across to who to their workers and uh, and. and potentially going to start to go and lift wages a little bit in order to go and see that flow on effect to consumption. Um, but I just don't see at the moment uh, that risk aversion that we're seeing as part of this, uh, the household savings ratio. You're also seeing in, uh, in, in personal uh, loan, uh, loan credit growth, should I say, um, which has been contracting quite substantially uh, over the last uh, few years constantly little negatives that are coming in. So people aren't willing to go and borrow for consumption like they did in the past. When we saw the savings ratio uh, briefly dip below zero uh, before the GSC, that was because people were feeling confident and they were going and borrowing to go and consume. That's completely reversed. Um, so when you put all the, the things together, uh, a lot of it comes down to the labour market. And given the, uh, the headwinds that are facing some of Australia's biggest employing sectors, such as retail, such as uh, construction, uh, it's it's not dire, but uh, there's certainly grounds for uh, for a bit of caution. Matthew, perhaps you can talk a little bit more about the, this disconnect between some of the forward indicators, which would point to um, 
perhaps a more positive outlook ahead and what we're seeing in the consumer sentiment research uh, mm-hmm. that, that you guys do? So, uh, you know, the, the, the strength at the moment in terms of forward indicators, uh, is, strangely enough, is around the labour market. Um, you know, a lot of the business surveys, uh, employment and tensions components are actually pointing to a significant lift in employment growth over the next six months. Business conditions on those surveys are also quite positive. Uh, I, I think the, the disconnect, um, I think it's, it, it comes back to these overarching balance sheet concerns. Mm. Um, and, uh, I think it's sort of caught up in it, – it's still a legacy of the GFC, right? So we, we sort of faced into the GFC with uh, a, a consumer boom in 2007 despite mortgage rates at nine and a half, um, a very strong housing market cycle. Um, and I think many Australians got the fright of their lives um, to see how quickly share market wealth could evaporate um, and to observe – you know, how quickly uh, housing wealth could could evaporate? Not so much here, but in, in the US. And I think um, that sort of coincided with, you know, timing wise. You think about it. Um, you know, we've got the, the the largest cohort of our of our uh, consumer sector, the baby boomers, are right on the cusp of of retirement or maybe in, in retirement. Um, so you kind of had this this profound shock and to, to risk aversion, this desperate sort of scramble to, to shore up finances in the first instance to you know, to, to meet you know, debt servicing, um, but um, also to sell down some of the housing assets and and prepare a bit more for, for retire, you know, plug a gap in retirement savings. Um, and, and since then, you know, we have had a. I think we did have a significant deleveraging across the household sector through that mm. period. And we, you know, maybe the last three or four years, you can argue that that, that process had had levelled out. People were a bit more comfortable with their debt levels, but I don't think they're prepared to really go back to two thousand and seven. Um, and so, uh, you know, that balance sheet restraint has been has been in there now. You know, in terms of all the various, I, I kind of agree. We're, we're sort of in this sort of consumer mode. We'll be moving ahead in fits and starts, and it's not going to be particularly strong, and and so forth. But one of the one of the potential positives out there, and maybe it's worth thinking about this, is the the scale of the the, the gains in household net worth in uh, in New South Wales and Melbourne, uh, Melbourne and Sydney, um, are quite uh, large. Mm-hmm. So, whatever their their feelings about their debt levels, which they haven't really been been lifting. Um, you know, this, these households are sitting on some pretty uh, impressive gains in net worth, paper gains perhaps, yeah. um, and so far they haven't really realised any of those gains or, mm. or, or really adjusted their behaviour at all. Uh, now, there's doubts around housing and, and how real those those gains are and turnover in the market's very low so you're not getting the cash flow sort of extracted from that equity. Uh, but it is, it is there. It's, and if you sort of think like for like, um, compared to because the balance sheet is so much larger than income flows, you know these gains in household net worth dwarf savings efforts uh, year to year. Of course, there's, there's been reports that uh, a lot of people in Sydney uh, and probably parts of Melbourne as well who actually seen their value of their house earn more than them in unrealised terms, obviously over the last few years, than they have in actual income, which uh, gives you a how much m- like net worth has been built, unrealised net worth. Uh, but at the same time, it uh, just gives you a picture like how strong the growth has been. If people want to go and, and tap out and, uh, and and cash in now, obviously there's uh, there's quite a big nest egg that they can go and. And, and, and I think that's that's the really critical question about where, where do we go from here? Because that that sort of group of of homeowners, um, you know, now facing a, a potentially a choice over no, maybe not this year, next year, or whatever. But you know, they're going to transact at some stage. 
Um, and many probably are putting that off because the, pro- the prospect of upgrading um, is, is pretty formidable in, in the existing market. But do we see other things happen? Do they uh, liquidate assets? Do they move into state? Do they, uh, you know, does that equity somehow start to drip feed its way out into into more liquid, um, you know, liquid finances and, and into, eventually into into spending? And I think that's you know if you're trying to look at that and think well. Um, you know, where's where's the scope for growth? I'd be looking at those that upgrader cohort. How are they going? You know, obviously, they, you know, many well, of them will be looking. If you think about looking... the the downsizer for the baby, like in terms yeah. of property, the downsize for for property. But what they do is at the same time they realise the gains from that's right and their so investments thirty years ago. That's uh, right. In the houses and, yeah. and how does that transact? You know, it could be a very slow process if if the market's on a go slow and it's a, you know. On a, a you know, restrictive credit and leverage restrictions in, in the mix, essentially, mm. um, you know, how does that uh, how does that unfold? Does it mm. does it you know, do it does it result in more interstate flows? Does it you know how does that that equity move from here? and also potentially re- release some stock into the Sydney property market, which well, is a big that's a, that's already you're already seeing it tentative evidence that's actually starting to happen. Listing numbers are slowly crawling off the map. They're still quite low compared to historic norms, but you're seeing that there's actually uh, more properties being put up. Up for sale, um, so it's interesting to see how that's going to go and play out now in terms of the outlook of property prices, particularly with uh, you know, changes implemented by APRA uh, around uh, investor uh, investor activity in the marketplace as well. But uh, you know, there's there's a sign that that's already occurring. So whether that uh, will now result in okay, people are starting to go and get a bit of turnover, more stocks coming on, more realised gains are uh, being achieved in in the vast majority of instances. Will that go into consumption? That is a, a key question. Yeah. And um, Matthew, I do, do want to just um, underscore one um, thing that you said um, earlier uh, there in terms of when people were so happy, and Dave, you touched on it too, people were happy to, to run up a bit of debt in the run-up to the GFC. And if we think about uh, how the GFC, which is now almost a, a decade ago, mm. incredibly, um, about how the what the legacy is of that. Um, so we obviously know it reshaped um, whole industries, uh, whole economies. But the impact in some ways was kind of relatively minor, but there still is a sort of new you know, a community awareness or uh, an awareness among consumers that there are real things that can happen in faraway places that can very quickly come and affect us here and you kind of need maybe a bit of a buffer. Yeah, I think so. I think um, we're, we're sort of living with a, an element of sort of post-traumatic stress mm. disorder, um, reliving it every now and then, you know, whether it's a... a uh, well, we have had genuine crises since then as well. You know, the European debt crisis was a was a real um, scare, and it's a lot of the underlying issues around um, uh, whether it's uh, fiscal or, or, or um, debt levels more generally across the developed economies. They're still there in, in one way or another. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, I think it's it's made uh, Australian consumers much more sensitive. That said, I think you know, ten years on, we may, or going on ten years on. Um, some of that may be starting to fade. And I, the reason I say that is um, uh, for, for a long time uh, we were seeing from our uh, consumer sentiment uh, surveys uh, that uh, the consumers were uh, were very uh, averse to um, you know, any, any risk-taking assets. As I said, there was this indication that they went into, you know, we had a, a deleveraging phase um, and then, uh, some of that uh, seemed to ease off for, for the last few years, but what what was interesting through through this whole period is so we have additional questions. Uh, you guys are probably interested in this around consumers' uh, news recall. 
um, yeah, and, yeah. and whether those uh, topics were viewed positively or negatively. So we asked them about you know, whether they recalled news on international conditions, economic conditions, and so on and so forth. Um, and amazingly, um, w- the responses um, during uh, the European debt crisis were significantly higher, so significantly higher levels of recall than during the GFC itself. So, so Lehman's and the, you know, the, yeah. the bailout and the, the whole um, drama in, in late 2008, which, you know, if you're in financial markets, that was, that was it, um, uh, was, was actually a lower level, had lower sort of, uh, you know, consumers weren't as tuned into that as they were, you know, two years later with this European story that was yeah. far more complicated. I and, suppose perhaps it only came ser- became serious when Kevin Rudd walked out and said, hey, by the way, we're going to guarantee bank deposits, <laughs> and, you know, and well, hang on a second, maybe this is real. And by the way, and people start get, getting the, checks in the mail. Yeah, the, the interesting thing, and I, I don't fully, maybe this is a, more to do with fake news or something, but um, the the more recent dramas around uh, Brexit and then Trump have actually had lower levels of recall really? than in 2012. I, I was really surprised at that. I don't know how you could have read any news over the last 12 months and not been aware of international conditions <laughs> and some yeah. of these dramas. It is great. I, I honestly think there's a bit of fatigue, you know, crisis, yeah. crisis fatigue. Uh, you see in financial markets now, you know, back in the GSC days, there was a prolonged... You know, Assets were smashed. Uh, that lasted for, geez, probably at least a year or just under a year until we saw the uh, Nadir. Then during the uh, the European debt crisis, same thing, but it was a slightly shorter, prolonged period. And then Brexit, you know, Brexit, you look back, it's only just uh, just, <laughs> over a, just over a year ago. Um, the, the pound the, value the, of 10%. The, 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 the pound value, but then everything was back to like being yeah, absolutely yeah. beautiful. The teaching uh, span is just yeah. nothing now. <laughs> same, again, same again with the US election. Uh, you know, when the, uh, when the first results come out and Trump was, uh, was going to go and uh, take the, uh, the presidency, everything was like, had a... Uh, U.S. stock futures down, limit down five percent. Like the world was going mm-hmm. to end, and then by the end of the session, the world was fantastic again. So yeah. it gives you a bit of indication. <laughs> that, that people yeah. are like, okay, oh yeah, just another one. I'll buy an opportunity. Probably much the same with uh, with households as well. Oh, we've seen this before. <laughs> yeah, I do so think one thing that's really fascinating is um, when you look at the bond market now. So yields are well in U.S. Treasuries and in I think Australian ten years just. They're mm. the two that I sort of look at for sort of where where we at. Um, they uh, obviously exploded mm. um, uh, up towards two point seven for the UST, two point eight, and uh, but three percent for the Australian ten years, mm-hmm. and now they're back to where they were around about the week or just shortly after Trump was elected. So, yeah, yeah. Um, which is amazing. So, but yet the Nasdaq. And uh, I think the S&P um, has continued to sort of grind out all-time highs. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, the same goes for the US dollar. So we're back uh, in DXY, so the index terms. You know, we're back below the, uh, the Trump president's uh, election period. So, yeah, it, yeah there's a... Uh, and that was a big rally. That went on for weeks. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. I think, I think there's a reluctance, though, for a lot of people to go and, and sell down equities too much. The last, uh, last eight, nine years has taught people that... Uh, <laughs> when, when there's a dip, it doesn't generally last very long. And I think that may explain partially why there's such a divergence between what you're seeing in, uh, in rates markets and, uh, and in US dollars to what's going on in US equity markets. And of course, uh, a lot of uh, US equities benefit from a weaker US dollar, so you've got to add that in as a factor as well. 
You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Um, so our guest is uh, Matthew Hassan, Senior Economist at Westpac. Um, Matthew, I thought it would be a nice opportunity. Um, Australia brought up a bit of a landmark uh, uh, result this week with the GDP number. I think it's 103 consecutive quarters of economic growth without a technical recession. So mm. two uh, consecutive quarters uh, of, of negative growth. More than a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, you know, we're the world beaters at economic, sustained periods of economic so growth. We're going to put that on a trophy. Very <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. You know, spot the editor, Jesus Christ. Um, right. Um, so, uh, but I did, did think, you know, good opportunity to just sort of mark it, but just like, let's have a quick look at... Um, at uh, just very a very brief look at what have been the fundamental factors um, that have supported all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so we need to have some better words, I think. For I think uh, economists need to come up with a much better framework for how to uh, dish out these awards and actually label things. But it, uh, yeah, so look, it's a it's a it's an achievement. Um, so there've been many different phases. to what is a very long expansion. Um, the starting point was the early nineties uh, recession. Um, that coincided with a range of, of major policy changes. You know that that whole period through the the well, started in the late eighties, but it really continued through the mid nineties. Uh, you know we saw uh, the introduction of independent reserve bank uh, policy, inflation targeting. Um, we we saw a significant reduction in inflation, a permanent reduction in inflation, uh, associated reduction in interest rates, and we had um, a whole series of deregulations um, and privatisation programs. So. Uh, industries that hadn't been um, touched in, in decades uh, were finally uh, opened up or, um, or you know, introduced to more commercial um, competition. Uh, and so I think for the, for the early f- phases, you know, we had you know, the recovery uh, from the, the, the uh, recession and then a period, which is really the, probably the, 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 pe- the period that most people uh, have the fondest memories of, I imagine, <laughs> yeah. um, where uh, interest rates uh, just went progressively lower and some pretty big steps. Uh, where we had a productivity boom, um, and so it was all coming. You know, I think it's probably the, the, the favourite period, particularly for the uh, central bank, um, yeah. where they could uh, look at strong growth and not have to have to react that much. I mean, they, they had a, they got a bit spooked early on, um, thought that uh, inflation might come back. But so that 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 sort of early period was was uh, pretty important. Um, yeah, we have had some pretty big shocks along the way, and I think the reason why we should look back over this and, and not be too uh, mean spirited, you know, we have had some uh, near recessions. Um, I think 2008-09 we came about as close as you ever come to a, a proper uh, technical recession. Do you, do you think that was a recession? I know there's a, always a debate about you no know, this technical recession, two quarters of growth. You, it, it felt I know from being in Sydney and particularly working yeah. in, uh, in financial markets at the time that it felt to me like you no, know, there was a, a mild recession that period. Look, if I was if I was pushed, I would say we we had a, a significant downturn. We didn't quite hit. So for me, I, I don't think the technical definition is any good yeah, um, sure. because it doesn't allow for, you know, if you go back further, you can have some really volatile quarters because of the way the economy operated back then. Um, it doesn't allow for really weak annual growth. You know, if you've got a big contraction and then a small rise compared to two back-to-back small contractions. So for me, and, and I think um, the, what is it, the uh, US... Um, 
business cycle dating committee. It's one of the, my favorite committee names. Right. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's not a singles club for economists. It's, no. it's, it's an actual committee in the U.S., which um, uh, determines when the, when the uh, U.S. business cycle starts and stops, and they use a whole range of things. So they'll, they'll draw on the GDP numbers, but their preferred benchmarks are actually more around the labor market, um, and, and I tend to agree. I think what we saw during the GFC was uh, unemployment from a very low starting point uh, back in the falls, um, uh, rose about one and a half percentage points. That, I, if it had risen too, I'd say that's a recession. Uh, you know, if you go back to the early nineties recession, it was a pretty bad one here. You know, we had you know, five six percentage point rise in, in mm. unemployment. <laughs> Similarly, in the early eighties, but I, I think oh eight oh nine, you know, that's that's pretty close to a recession. It, it, it really does. It worries me sometimes, uh, coming from Ireland, where. Uh, you know, I, I was here when when the last recession hit, but that was a really nasty one. Um, and just talking to people every day about yeah, and you know, we know another three people who lost their jobs yesterday. Mm. Um, these people have to sell their house. Um, these, you know, and it That's, just it just is every day. It's yeah, everywhere, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so all consuming. And because you get all of this massive impact, uh, particularly on households. Retail sector, which is a very big employer, starts they start shutting stores. Uh, and I think it just goes through in weeks, in a matter of weeks, it yeah, can happen yeah. in, in a in a particularly nasty one. And I think one of the things that kind of, um, I think you know, after this kind of period, kind of sometimes talking to Australians about what it looks like, mm. uh, people are like, really, <laughs> is, you know, is is that what happens? I, I, I can. Share that because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a Kiwi originally, and New Zealand's been through about you know six or seven recessions since. You know, I think most of the '80s were a recession in, mm-hmm. in New Zealand, um, and and yeah, I think it's it's really about that. It's about um, company failures, and it's about widespread um, you know, layoffs of, of um, employees, um, and, and that you know no option kind of situation where you can't just go out and get a job, um, and you can't keep the business running anymore. And I think we got we got that in, in some segments, but um, if you go back to the GFC, there was this pivotal moment I think in, in late two thousand and eight where, um, for whatever reason, uh, Australian businesses chose to sharply cut um, hours worked, so rather than headcount. Mm. Um, and you know, maybe there was a question mark for them as to you maybe there's going to be a bit more demand from the stimulus measures that were coming through, and they didn't want to not have the staffing to. to, to to meet that, but I think that was the, the moment where, you know, if it'd gone the other way, um, then those sorts of feedback loops yeah. are very hard to, to stop. Unwind, yeah, 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 yeah. David, you had one really interesting piece. Uh, I know we we're under a bit of time pressure here, but you um, one really interesting wrote a, uh, about one really interesting factor in all of this, which has been the population growth this week. Yeah, it's always sort of helps when you uh, measure things in volume terms. Uh, when you have more people, so I call it more bums on seats. So uh, it always helps when you're measuring things in volume. So just over that period, it's uh, it's it's a major factor. Reforms and everything else has uh, also played a role. Uh, and let's not forget China. Just talking about 2008, 2009, uh, a big reason why we didn't fall into a recession back then, in my opinion, was that China unleashed uh, the, the fiscal stimulus splurge that's never been seen before, which uh, certainly going, helped us uh, in nominal GDP terms and both real GDP down the line. Uh, but in the period that we've seen that Australia's had this 103 consecutive quarters without the technical recession, uh, we've also seen population growth of more than 40%. 
Mm. Um, so when you go and put it together, it's been a major factor. Uh, particularly in recent years, productivity gains per worker is, uh, has not been particularly strong, but population growth has been strong. Uh, and that's been a buffer as well, which has allowed us to go and have this continuous period of growth. Yeah. Uh, if you look at uh, metrics such as uh, real GDP per person, uh, that's basically flat over the year. Uh, so we're growing 1.7% annualised, but in terms of you no know, per capita, per person, we're looking at 0.2. Mm. So it gives you a fair indication as to uh, what's been helping us recently. Fantastic. Um, uh, Matthew, anything to add there? Just, the- just one thing. So I, I, I take this point. I agree that it's, a, you know, it's, it's revealing about conditions in the, the household sector in particular and, and why this growth doesn't – it was not great growth to begin with, but it doesn't – it looks even worse at the, at the individual level. Um, and, and the strong population growth story in Australia is something that tends to get overlooked. You know, it's part of the reason why we've had this buffer when, when uh, shocks have come along. Um, uh, you know, to grow at 2% or 2% plus uh, on average is pretty extraordinary. Most, most developing economies don't have that sort of, you know, it's stronger than Malaysia and a lot of Southeast Asian developing economies. The only thing I'd add there, though, is um, in some respects, the population growth is speaking to some of the drivers of our economic, of our economy. You know, and in many ways, we are a, a, a migration attractor location. Um, exactly, and, and uh, while I'm, yeah, in the, I'm in the minority, right. <laughs> an Englishman, an, and, uh, sorry, an Irishman, and an Australian, and a Kiwi walked into a podcast studio. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 we shouldn't just be so dismissive of that because you can't just put up a flag and say come here. You know, you've got to have some genuine reasons why people want to come to and live in Australia. Um, and at the moment, you know, there, there's a whole range of things, you know, lifestyle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A lot of it's also tied up with um, our education system and our foreign education exports. Um, One of the numbers that I pulled out recently was to to track um, migration arrivals against the the government's migration program. And through most of this period, okay, the migration program has been been lifted since the mid-90s, but the bulk of the pickup and migration arrivals doesn't really relate to that. The bulk of it relates to the fact that we've got more temporary residents here. We've got foreign students uh, who are not necessarily migrating as, res- as, as permanent citizens, but that reflects the growth in that whole industry. Um, and so I think um, you know, we, we shouldn't uh, be too kind of mean-spirited on our, on our performance and say, hey, we're just, right. we're just uh, running yeah. off the back of this lucky... That's right. What they're essentially doing is buying Australia's education, yeah. education system and because it's good, uh, it's in the right sort of part of the world, for them, particularly, mm-hmm. I'd say the Chinese students is a big component of that. Um, but they're coming from uh, a lot of other places too. And, you know, uh, India, I think, is a major source of um, inward mm-hmm. migration. Um, uh, and, you know, like as you say, you know, we shouldn't be too sort of mean-spirited about it because it's people wanting to come here and uh, improve themselves um, exactly. because they think it's high quality. Um, okay, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, one quick thing. The Lions uh, are in your home country <laughs> Um, uh, Matthew, are you looking forward to watching a bit of that? Oh, I'm very excited, very, very excited. Um, okay. I know, uh, you know, they've gone a bit uh, shaky the first couple of games, but um, <laughs> they're, they're looking like a big, tough unit. That um, I think uh, the the tests are just going to be incredible. Yeah, and this the spirit is there. I went to a couple of tests the last time, and uh, one of the great things I will say about the Lions is. Uh, up there in our little corner of Europe, 
um, where, you know, let's say we – how can we put it? that We've had some neighborly disagreements <laughs> um, over the past few centuries. Um, but, you know, these days everybody knows each other. We all visit each other's towns and marry each other, buy each other's houses, work for each other's businesses, all of that kind of stuff. Right. And this is the one thing that we can all sort of do together. Yeah. Um, and you get Englishmen, uh, Irishmen, Scotsmen and, and a disproportionate number of Welshmen um, <laughs> <laughs> um, getting together and, uh, you know – and having dinner and <laughs> drink a beer and watch a rugby and it's uh, yeah, uh it's really, really looks amazing yeah, yeah yeah so poor poor old lines getting smashed by the blues i sort of you know they had the babas which is always a little yeah. bit mercurial up first and then the blues they got uh, the uh they got beaten i think they've got the crusaders next that's 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 <laughs> interesting because that's i think that'll be a shadow test in, in a lot of ways you know the crusaders are putting up their all blacks uh for for the game um, the Lions are going to front their, their, their first uh, first strings team as well, yeah, by the looks right. of it. Yeah. And and I think they also play a similar style in some ways. So the really sort of choking, sort of defensive, dominated um, control uh, aspect is going to be fascinating who yeah. comes out on that. Fantastic. Okay, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest has been Matthew Hassan, Senior Economist at Westpac. Matthew, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, and also with us this week, David Scott. Thanks very much, Dave. No problem, mate. Enjoy your uh, long weekend. The show has been produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. You can also find us on iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time. podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.